Well, I hear that music this morning, and I just say, praise God, right? Isn't that amazing? Like, God saves us from our sins, and we get to shout and sing, and uh, I think that's a song we're going to sing a couple of times this month, and so I'm looking forward to singing Jesus Saves. How many of you have ever heard that song before? Raise your hand. Okay, so a few of us in here have heard it, so pray the Lord will use that song in the life of our church. And I don't think my, uh, there we go. Oops, sorry about that. <coughs> Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah 52. Our text this morning will be Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. And then over the next two weeks, we will also look at Isaiah 53. The title of this sermon is Behold Jesus, God's Promised Servant. I'm going to read Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15 this morning. Would you stand with me as I read God's word? Stand with me as I read Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will illumine us to the truth of this text. We believe the natural person cannot understand the things of the Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray for that one in here who doesn't know Christ. I pray this morning you will open that person's eyes to the glorious truth that Jesus Christ saves. And I pray they'll trust in Christ this morning. Lord, I pray for our our church I pray that we will depend upon your spirit this morning as we listen, that we'll have this prayer in our heart, that you would speak to us through your word, that we would understand and really be moved by faith to obey you, to worship you, to live for you. So God bless the preaching of your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, for Thanksgiving, I told you last week that our family went to the Mojave Desert, and we went to a camp, and we spent time with another family there, another pastor who's in the valley, and his wife and children, and one of the highlights of each day was at night, we would gather with our families, and we had two guitars, an ukulele, a violin, and we would sing songs. And we just got carried away and would sing and sing. We sang songs like Jesus, Thank You, 
and Ancient of Days, Behold Our God, a lot of the songs that we sing in the services here. One night, we decided to take a trek out to the desert, and we climbed a mountain to a little area. This is the, what it looked like for our family and this family, and this is what we were looking out and seeing. And we decided to take our, some of our instruments and sing as the sun set. And between the songs, we'd have uh, different kids would say an attribute of God, and we would talk about that attribute and praise God for it. And it was really an incredible experience to, to witness nature and God really speaking through nature and through those songs and ministering to our hearts. And while we were singing, God was painting the sky with oranges and reds. The sun dimmed its glow over the peaks. And we witnessed the beauty of God in creation. We were able, you could say it like this, we were able to behold the Lord in the beauty of his creation. You know, God delights for us to behold Christ and to respond in worship and in faith. And it's wonderful to do that in creation. But the scripture also is given to us so we can behold Jesus Christ and his glory as we read his word. And Isaiah 52 and 53 really shines forth the glory of God by revealing Jesus and the purpose for his coming. Now, this text might not be a passage that you would pick or you would assume I would pick for Christmas and for a Christmas series, but over the next two weeks, we will be looking at this passage. But I think it's appropriate because this passage displays Christ, which is what Christmas should be about, right? And so when we go to this text of scripture, I pray, I hope that your mind will be illuminated by the glory of Christ. I remember when I was growing up, our parents would wrap our presents, usually the day before Christmas. And they would allow, sometimes they would allow us to go into their bedroom and wrap the presents for other siblings. And one Christmas, my brother got a little motorcycle, you know, you pull the back of it and it goes, it was super cool. So I was wrapping this present for my brother and I yelled out, Paul's getting a motorcycle. That ruined his Christmas. But you know, it was fun to be able to see the present that they were going to get before Christmas. And what we see here in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, it's like Israel got a peak of the gift of Jesus 700 years before he, the Son of God, would come as the incarnate man, God in the flesh. And so what we see in Isaiah 52 and 53 is, is this, the glory of Jesus Christ, centuries before he came, was born as a baby, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, was resurrected and ascended on high. So my goal over the next three weeks is to unwrap these truths of Christ and behold Jesus as God's promised servant. 
And notice actually in Isaiah 52, verse 13, notice how this text begins. The scripture says, and really God the Father is speaking here about his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 13, behold my servant. The word behold means to look, to to put your eyes upon, to consider. And really the idea behind this word is to continue to look. The New Testament is clear that the servant here is Jesus Christ. So here God the Father is saying, put your eyes upon, behold, consider my servant, the one to come, and that is Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 2 says, look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And I think that's what this is saying here. That's what the Father is doing. He's saying, behold, my son, behold, my servant. The very first Christmas, those shepherds in the field had a visit from an angel and then a multitude of angels. And and the shepherd or the angel told those shepherds, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And really, what was their news? What was the behold? What were they to see? And that is, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They were not just to go behold a baby, but a baby who is going to be the Savior, a baby who is the Lord, Yahweh God, God in the flesh. And so truly, I think this is my prayer for our church. My hope for you is that this Christmas season will be a time for you to behold Christ. I mean, there's so many things that can distract us this time of year. There's good things, right? You, you gather with your family and you make Christmas cookies and you watch this movie or whatever. And, but sometimes this time of year can just be about the busyness of all those things. And so let me just invite you, church, to, to use this time of year to put your attention upon the Lord Jesus Christ to, to seek to know him more, to worship him. Maybe for your family to, to gather around and sing some songs together. Or maybe you would take this passage of scripture, Isaiah 52, 13, down through the end of chapter 53, and you would memorize this passage this time of year. I mean, use this time of year to really consider and behold Christ. The book of Isaiah was written to Judah during a time when they were threatened to be destroyed by Assyria and Egypt. And eventually they were uh, overthrown by Babylon. And so the first really half of this book, verse chapter uh, 1 through chapter 35, deals with God's judgment upon Judah because of their sins. And then the middle of the book hinges, and in chapter 40, you see God comforting his people with the hope that the Messiah, the servant of God, would come and save his people from their sins. And in chapter 40, you have that famous song uh, line, I should say, from Handel's Messiah, where we say, comfort, comfort ye my people. So God comforts his people with the hope of this servant. And there's four servant songs 
we call them servant songs that give the hope of this coming servant. That's Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and then the last one, the fourth servant song that gives us hope that God will save his people is this passage right here, Isaiah 52, uh, in 13 through the end of chapter 53. And really in this text of scripture here, we see that we are to behold the success of God's servant. Behold the success of God's servant. His success will be his guaranteed exaltation. The success of the coming servant of God will be in his guaranteed exaltation. Look at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. If you have a, a NASB or a Legacy Standard Bible, the translation is, is, is something like this. My servant will prosper, which I think is a better translation than what we have here in the ESV. The idea of this word here is that, is that the Messiah, the, the servant of the Lord, would succeed. He would prosper. This word is used in Joshua 1, 7 and 8 of Israel. If they meditate on God's word and if they obey God's word, God promised them success in the promised land. And so that, I think that's the, the idea here is that God's servant would be so wise, I mean, perfectly wise, that he was guaranteed success. So here God is guaranteeing that his servant will come, he will prosper, he will succeed. And therefore, I think this text here is reminding us that what God promises to do will succeed. Do you realize God's plans never fail? Like, we make plans, we bake cookies, and we leave them in too long, and they burn. Or, or if you look in your bulletin and you're taking notes, you might notice an error. Has anyone noticed the error? Oh, boy, some of you are not either not taking notes, or you're not looking at the bulletin very carefully, or you don't know how to spell. But there's an error in there. In other words, you, you're like, I'm, I'm like, I want to make these notes so people can, like, remember it. And then you look at the bulletin, and you realize, oh, I misspelled the word exaltation. We make plans, and our plans don't always turn out how we expect. But listen, now some of you getting your papers out. Good. Now get a pen and take some notes, right? We make plans, and they don't go how we think sometimes. But do you realize that God's plans never fail? And that's what this text is saying. God will do what he promises, and for the Messiah, it is guaranteed exaltation. Notice verse number 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall succeed. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Notice the progression of this exaltation. He's lifted high. He's raised up. He's lifted up. He's exalted. This is a prophecy of the victory of Jesus Christ in his resurrection, in his ascension, and then his final coronation. So notice in verse 13, he shall be high. So he would be resurrected. He would be raised to life from the dead. He shall be lifted up. 
This is his ascension. That is after 40 days of living on earth and in a resurrected body, he would go to the Mount of Olives with his disciples and then he would ascend up into heaven. And then notice last, he shall be exalted. This is the prophecy that after his ascension, he would be seated at the right hand of the Father, which really is an expression that he is in a position of authority. He's in a position of authority over all people and all powers. He is the head of the church. He is using, he's working through the power of his Holy Spirit to save souls, to build his church, to do his will on this earth. And there will be a day when he will return and he will return as the judge of all the earth. And he will reign forever as the king of kings. This is what was promised to Mary. Remember Mary, that young 13, 14-year-old girl, virgin girl, was promised that she was going to have a, a virgin conception. It was a miracle of God. And what was going to be born within her was the Son of God, or what was going to be formed within her was the Son of God. Verse 32, Luke 1, Gabriel says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will, notice this, give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That is, it's eternal. He's not just a king. He's a king who reigns supreme forever. That's the promise of the angel to Mary and to really all of us. And so our faith is in Jesus Christ, who actually this is a present reality for him. Like we're not hoping in someone who may be a victor 700 years before Jesus came, those who read this text would have hoped for that king to come. But we now look back and we know he's come and we know he is now the king of kings. And here's the faith for us Christians. And that is our faith is the one in Christ who now is in charge and who is the victor. He has already risen from the dead, which means he's defeated sin. He's defeated death. He has defeated Satan. Therefore, there's no reason for any of us to fear death if you're in Christ. And there's no reason sin should be dominating you. If you are dominated and ruled, controlled by sin, let me just tell you this. It's not God's fault because Jesus is powerful enough. He can free you from that. It really goes back to you. And that means that you're not placing your faith in Christ, who is the king, who can free you from your sin. The exaltation of Christ, the right hand of the Father, means that he is powerfully working now. And that should be a present experience in the life of all of us Christians, that God, or I should say Christ, is at work right now through the word of God, by the power of the spirit of God. 
And so the power of God should be a present reality in our life. And let me just say this on another side note. If the power of God is not being experienced in your life, again, that's not God's fault. Christ has offered that to you, and you need to place your faith in Christ as king. So Christ's exaltation means that those who trust in him, even when it might seem impossible, those who trust in him, can see God accomplish his will in their life. In fact, I think about, think about Mary, and she was faced with really an impossible situation. In fact, didn't the angel even say that? The angel said, for nothing will be impossible with God. I mean, it seems like this is an impossible situation, but the angel says, no, Mary, trust God, trust the word of God. And how did Mary respond to that news that she's going to have a a baby, but yet she's a morally pure girl. She's a virgin. This is going to be a a virgin conception, but she's going to have a baby and he's going to be the son of God. How did she respond to that? Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And here's the response of Mary. I trust God. See, Mary... She didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, there's a sense of that she's maybe naive and a little bit, but but also she has a great faith in the word of God. Let it be according to your word. If your word says it, I'm gonna trust it. And that was the heart of Mary, and I'm so thankful for that. And that really should be the heart of the believer. See, because if you're if you're suffering, if you're dealing with something right now, it's so easy to put our, our eyes upon what we want. It's so easy to put our eyes on what we don't have or what we wish was different. But when we truly behold Christ, we realize he's the king, he's in charge. And we say, Lord, I surrender my life to you, trusting that your will will succeed. And I attach myself to Christ by faith, trusting in him. And so so we're to behold the success of God's servant. His success will be his guaranteed exaltation, and then second, his success will be his astonishing humiliation. So the prophecy here is that the success of the servant will be his astonishing humiliation. Look at verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, in his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. And we'll stop right there. There are people that have viewed the videos of the atrocities that were committed by Hamas on October 7th. I guess there's some type of 45-minute, really gruesome video that lays bare what happened on that day. And, And when you read about how people responded to seeing those videos, you can see people are are crying, people are in shock, people are astonished. And I think that's the type of astonishment here that the Father is prophesying would be the reaction of those who viewed the suffering of Jesus Christ. Verse 14 says that many 
were astonished at you. That is the suffering servant. This is the shocking reaction to, to the effects of Christ's suffering. In fact, notice verse 14. Just notice the parallel between verse 14 and 15. Verse 14, first, many are astonished at his humiliation. And then in verse 15, many will be astonished at his triumph. In verse 14 and 15 are set up as parallel statements to compare the shock of many to Christ's humiliation and to compare that sh- the shock of many to Christ's exaltation. So let's first look at the astonishment of his humiliation. What's interesting, if you read through the gospel accounts of Jesus suffering and then death on the cross, is you don't see a very clear description of what Jesus looked like when he was suffering. In fact, I don't, I'm not really aware of any description of his appearance when he was on the cross or even before when he was being whipped and scourged. We, we know that Jesus was bludgeoned in the face by the religious leaders as they mocked him. We know the Roman soldiers, they scourged him, and the scripture just says that he was scourged doesn't really describe what that all involved. If you study, you, you realize that, if you study history, you realize that scourging would have included a whip that was a leather type of whip with some type of sharp objects attached to it. And the idea is that you would whip the, the criminal and then it would, those sharp objects would attach into the skin of that criminal and then when you rip it off, flesh would come out. But we don't have a description of that in the Gospels. We know the soldiers beat him with a rod and and rammed thorns into his skull. We know his wrists were nailed through and his feet as well. But again, it's interesting, there's no description of of the blood that gushed out and and when did it come out most and, and what did his face look like and what did his body look like? We don't have that. The closest description we have to what Jesus looked like in his suffering is actually in Isaiah 52, 14. And notice the description here. His appearance, this is the servant of God, his appearance, that is his face, was so marred beyond human semblance. His form, that is his body, beyond that of the children of mankind. This verse records the results of Jesus' physical humiliation would be that he wouldn't even look human. People would look at his face, and it wouldn't even look like the face of a man. People would look at his body, and it didn't even look like a human body. Is that how you picture Christ's suffering? I think we probably have a sanitized view of what happened to his body. But the point of this text isn't to have us grimace at his physical humiliation. The point is to show how those who witnessed his suffering reacted to that humiliation. They were shocked. Because they didn't expect the the one who called himself Messiah to suffer like that. There was no one around that cross. There was no one in the city of Jerusalem 
that thought the Messiah would be tortured like that and would look so horrific. I mean, who would have thought that the one who was on that cross would be the exalted king of kings? The answer to that is, as far as we know in the scripture, no one thought that at that time. And that's why it was so shocking when he rose again. It was like, how is that possible? How is that possible? Well, it's because he is the perfect lamb of God who conquered sin and death. And he proved that through resurrection. And it was really through the suffering of Christ that God displayed the glory of his servant because through that suffering, he conquered the greatest evil and the greatest foe. The greatest evil is sin and the greatest foe is death. And so third, notice his success, not just the astonishing humiliation, but also his success would be the triumphant position, his triumphant position. So again, look down in verse 14 and notice, notice this parallel. Many are astonished as humiliation. And in verse 15, many will be astonished at his triumph. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Christ's humiliation is what God used to exalt Jesus as the triumphant Savior. And you know, that's how God works. Isn't that interesting? It's how God works. It's a, it's a principle in the scriptures that humility is God's path towards exaltation. God exalts his servants through first humility, and then in his time, he lifts them up. And that should be something that we should have on our mind whenever we read something like this, is that that's God's path for us. Humility must be the attitude of us, of each one of us. Christ's humiliation is what God used to exalt him. And notice the astonishing humiliation in verse 14 has two has a twofold result. And you can see that in verse 15. So the results of his astonishing humiliation are twofold. Number one, he shall sprinkle many nations. And number two, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. So the results of his astonishing humiliation are that he shall sprinkle many nations. That's speaking of his provision of atonement for sins. And then second, kings shut their mouths because of him. And that's the triumph because of the gospel. So notice the first result of his astonishing humiliation. He shall sprinkle many nations. Now you might have a translation. I don't think there's very many. I think there's maybe one or two translations that I've found that actually uh, translate that word sprinkle instead as startle. Or you might have a study Bible that has a note in there and says that maybe that could be translated as startle. Now, I actually don't think that's a good translation at all. I think probably the best translation is sprinkle. And let me just explain why. That, there, that word, the Hebrew word for that, is found 24 times in the Old Testament. In all of those times, it speaks of something being sprinkled. 21 of those times 
are found in the Pentateuch, and in all of those cases, it refers to the sprinkling of purification or uh, the sprinkling of blood for atonement. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 16, you see the, the sprinkling of blood, that word's used to speak of the sprinkling of blood for the day of atonement. And when we say the day of atonement, you know what we're talking about. The day of atonement was a special, was a part of a special feast that they had. They had seven biblical feasts in Israel, and this was one of the six. This is six of the seven that they observed. And, and, and the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, was the, the most special day for Israel. I mean, if, if, if Christmas is the most important day of the year for Christians, now I think it's actually Easter, but for Americans, it's kind of like we celebrate Christmas more than anything else. That's this day for them. This, this was the biggest day of the year for Israel. And on that day, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. And he would take the, the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant. And that day was necessary so Israel could have their sins covered, atoned for, and God's wrath for their sin would be satisfied. So the high priest, think about it. Imagine him going into the Holy of Holies and sprinkling the blood on the sacrifice, of the sacrifice on the, on the mercy seat. And when he did that, he was presenting that the sacrifice that they had made was a, a sacrifice that was, was, was right. It, was, it fulfilled all the requirements and one that God would accept. And all those in Israel who, who were trusting in God and, and that God would atone through that sacrifice, they would be forgiven of their sins. That was a promise God made. Those sacrifices were a, a foreshadowing of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who would come as our sacrifice. And in a similar way, Israel would be forgiven if they believed in that sacrifice, the blood sacrifice applied to the, to the mercy seat, that God would forgive their sins. In a similar way, God forgives those who believe that Jesus is the sacrifice for their sins. So for them, it was a, a foreshadowing. The sprinkling was a, a foreshadowing of what Christ would do for us. So notice now in verse 14, because what I want to, or verse 15, what I want to show you is something that's pretty astounding. Because notice verse 15. So shall, so kind of on the, on the back of this, his appearance is marred, his body, you know, so you have this, this suffering of the servant. Verse 15, so, here's a result of that suffering. So shall he sprinkle many, what does it say? Nations. Now, if you're Israel, it's, that might be a little bit of a shock. Shouldn't it say, so shall he sprinkle Israel? And here's, here's the twist. Here's the, here's the, the surprise. Here's the, the shock of this, that, that Christ came to die, not just for the Jewish people, but for the Gentiles. This is the mystery of, of the New Testament that was revealed to us. And that, that, that is that Christ comes to save not just his people Israel, but he came to save the Gentiles. His salvation is for 
all who believe. Luke chapter two, this is, this is the testimony of Simeon. Simeon, remember that, that gentleman in the, the temple who held the baby Jesus? And he lifted baby Jesus up and he praised the Lord. And what did he, what did he say? He says, my eyes have seen your salvation. That infant child was the salvation for Israel, right? That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, or you could say to the nations, and for glory to your people. And here Simeon was quoting from Isaiah 49. That's the second of the servant songs. And he used that Old Testament passage to proclaim that the servant of God would bring salvation to the Jew first, but also to the Greek, to the Gentiles. And how did Mary and Joseph respond when they heard this news? The scripture says they marveled about what he said. And honestly, when we hear that Christ has brought salvation to us, and even for us, like if you're a believer in here, then obviously that's, that's not new news for you, but it should affect you still. I mean, I think we should still have this reaction of, of Mary and Joseph when you hear that. It's like, salvation has come to all people who believe. Why, why me? Well, it's not because of my goodness or anything that I've done. It's only by his grace. So the astonishing reality is that through his humiliation, through his suffering, through his atoning work on the cross, he can forgive the sins of those who believe in him. Then notice the, the second result of his astonishing humiliation is his exaltation, his triumph. Notice second, verse 15. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them, they shall see, or they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Now, what is this talking about? Why, when do kings shut their mouths because of Christ? Have you ever been shocked by something so much that you just don't know what to say? If someone gives you a gift, or maybe someone comes to your house and surprises you, and you just... You're just left speechless. Well, that's what this is talking about. It's talking about people being so shocked that just nothing can come out of their mouth. Well, when will this happen? When will this happen where when people will hear about Christ and they can't even speak? Like it just, it's, it's dumbfounding. Well, there's a fulfillment of this that's going to be on the final day. At the end of time, after Christ's second coming, there will be a day when this takes place, a final fulfillment, and there's also a, a partial fulfillment. So let's first talk about the, the final fulfillment, that there will be a day when, when, when this uh, timeline is done and every person will stand before Jesus Christ. Think about the billions of people that, that would represent, and heaven will be silent uh, just imagine the silence of heaven as everyone stands before the Lamb of God. And the only thing that any 
people will be able to say as they fall down in their face is Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what Philippians chapter 2 says. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there's going to be a day that all his enemies, all those who do not believe in him, will bow the knee and they will say he's Lord. And then God will judge them. Christ will judge them with eternal punishment. And there's going to be a day when we who have been redeemed and trust in that redemption will stand before Christ and we will praise him. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so that's that, that final fulfillment when, when really kings and presidents and those who thought they were important, they won't be able to say anything at that moment. Their mouths will be stopped. There's also a progressive fulfillment of this. In fact, you can see this in Romans chapter 15. And would you do this with me? Go over to Romans 15. This will be the last place we'll turn to in the scripture this morning. But in the book of Romans, Paul quotes this last phrase in Isaiah 52, 15. And Paul interpreted this text of scripture to speak about him proclaiming the gospel and so as the gospel spreads over the, the world and, and Christ changes lives, the gospel, the effect of the gospel is that it will shut the mouths of kings. In fact, I didn't have you read this, but if you were to read earlier on in, in, in Isaiah chapter 52, you would see that the, the beautiful feet that give the gospel proclaim a message, and the message is God reigns. And really the idea is that God reigns through Christ. Christ is the king. So the message of the gospel is Jesus is the king. All should bow down and, and, and worship him. So in Romans chapter 15, we see that the message of the gospel, that Jesus is king, isn't, he's not just king of the Jews. He's also king of the Gentiles. And all should bow their knee to him. Uh, about two weeks ago, our family listened to a story a biography about a missionary named John Williams. In 1817, he sailed with his wife to the South Pacific to do missions work. And at that time, most of those islands in the South Pacific were unreached islands. There were about 30,000 islands in the early part of the 1800s that were unreached. That represented a third of the world's known languages at that time. Millions of natives lived on those islands, and it covered about 20 million square miles, and it was his heart's desire to reach those people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And just to kind of give you a little color of actually what those islands were like, most of the people, most of the natives on those islands were mass murdering each other. Many of them were cannibals. They would kill another tribe, and they would eat their body thinking that, that the spirit of that person would give them more strength. They were slaughtering their own children. They would take their, the most precious thing they had and sacrifice that to an idol. Well, what's the most precious thing you have? It's your baby. 
And so they were killing their, so they're actually, they were having a population problem. Their population was going down, and they were, some islands were even to the point of almost extinction because they were worshiping these idols and just the savage, savagery and savage, the, the horrific nature of what was going on. There we go. Well, John Williams lived on one of these islands, and he was able to lead a, a king, a, a tribal king to the Lord. And he began to uh, evangelize that island to the point where 2,000 people on that island gave their life to Jesus Christ. And God began to change those people. I mean, not only were they now taught to read because he was translating the Bible into their language and teaching them that, but, but they changed from people who are now murderous to people who were giving, people who were helping one another. They would go to other tribes and they would actually help these tribes and, and help some of them that were sick. They would nurse them back to health. These, these, these people on these islands even started to the point where they started selling their own pigs to, to get money or to get supplies to be able to go give the gospel to other islands. Some of these on these islands were actually themselves going out as missionaries. The point is God was changing them. So much so, that they would, they would have tribal um, chiefs from other islands that would come over to these islands just to see what was going on. And they would be shocked at the change. In fact, there's, there's a couple of stories we read about how there would be these ships, these English ships that would pull up to these islands. And they just couldn't believe that cannibals were now Christians. And they would see the effect of this and it was shocking to them. And I think that's kind of what you see here in this text of scripture at the end of Isaiah 52 and then what we see here in, in Romans chapter 15. That as, as the gospel goes out and as, as Jesus reigns in the hearts of people, it, it so changes people that it's like, it kind of leaves you speechless. Like, how is this possible? So look in Romans 15. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 is speaking about how God called Paul by grace, notice, to minister to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So notice it's like this, these sacrifices he's making. It's like this priestly service. It's applying the, the atonement of Christ in these contexts. Verse 20, and this, I'm sorry, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. This is Paul's desire. Not where Christ has already been named. So he wants to go to those places that have not heard of Christ, lest I build on someone else's foundation. And then verse 21 is the quote from Isaiah 52, 15. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him, that's Jesus, will see. And those who have never heard will understand. This passage teaches that when the gospel goes to the Gentiles and they surrender their lives to Jesus Christ, that the effect of the gospel will be astonishing. They will hear what they did not know, that's that Christ is king and that he came to save us. And as they believe in this gospel, God will change their lives and there will be a partial fulfillment of this. There will be this astonishment at what Christ does in the life of a person. Christ should so reign in our life to the extent that when people witness our life, they're baffled by why we do what we do. Have you ever had this where people are like, why do you, why do you go to church so much? Ever heard that one before? 
I remember hearing that one growing up. Why does your, your family always go to church? Seems like you guys live there. And I guess we now do live here. <laughs> or, or why don't you want to watch that movie? Teenagers, you ever had that one? Your parents won't let you watch that. What's their problem? Well, you know, the reign of Christ causes us to say, you know, I want to honor him. He's my king. He rules what I think about. He rules what I'm entertained by. The reign of Christ affects our, our passion and love for him. Why does a person have such a passion for God when they sing to the Lord or they pray to the Lord? It's because they truly love him. It's because he's the king. They behold him in that way. And the point is that Christ's reign has such a grip on your heart that he, he truly reigns in your life so that it stops the mouths of those who are around you. So I guess the question for all of us is, are we living in that reality? Do we behold Christ in that way? He is the king, and therefore we surrender to him because he rules, and he will succeed in all that he does. And if you're a friend in here without Christ today, I want you to know something that is a truth and that is, if you're without Christ, all your plans that you have in this world for yourself, eventually they will fail because you're going to die. And you're going to stand before Christ. And his plan will succeed. And his plan is that he must punish your sin. And if you don't know Christ is your Savior, that means that you are under the wrath of God and you forever will experience God's wrath in hell. We don't want that for you. That's why Christ came to rescue you. And so our plea with you this morning is turn to the Lord. Surrender to Jesus Christ. And Christian, if you're in here today and you're living for yourself and you're just like, you know, my life right now is more about me. Can I just encourage you this morning to, to once again bow your heart before Christ and say, Christ, why am I living for me? You died for me so that I would not live for myself, but to him who, who died for me and rose again and reigns on high. May we live with Christ as our king. We behold him as he truly is.